I think we're going to try to rec- live record and open. So bear with us. This is yeah, so we exciting. are such amateurs. This, this is like a, this. It's like Please. a bespoke, a bespoke yeah. DIY. Great. Live radio. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, here with my colleague, Lisa Cohen. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby, and welcome to everyone listening. As you know, Abby and I both run the prizes department, and it's DuPont Columbia Awards time. And so we're dedicating this season of On Assignment to the 2018 winners. And today, we are lucky to have This American Life producer, Zoe Chase, in our studio. Hey, Zoe. Hi. Thanks for having me. So Zoe just won a DuPont Award for Will I Know Anyone at This Party, Act One, Party in the USA. Right. It's, we're trying to get that on the baton. Really? Yeah. That's exciting. And it's not your first time winning a DuPont. Sort of. I mean, I, I've been at to the DuPont Awards before because I worked with Planet Money on their t-shirt project and they won a DuPont for that. Or I guess I should say we won. Yeah, but absolutely. It was, it was really Alex Bloomberg's uh, brainchild, that project. Yeah, such an amazing project. Yeah. So thank you for coming up to Columbia to talk with us today. Thank you. And congratulations again for winning a DuPont for, and the title is This American Life, Episode 600, Will I Know Anyone at This Party, Act One, Party in the USA. <laughs> Yeah, that rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it's not usually said exactly like that. I see how it's a little clumsy, but um, but thank you. Yeah, no, um, the incredible work that you did this year, or I guess it was you did it in 2016. It was in the run up to the election, um, describing the split within the Republican Party over immigration in particular mm-hmm. that took you to St. Cloud, Minnesota. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in St. Cloud for the story. Yeah, so I'm happy to to talk about that. I've been thinking about that lately because basically I was interested, like you're saying, in the split in the Republican Party. And I guess the reporting I was doing went through some phases of kind of understanding, oh, there is a split. What does the split look like? How is it playing out? What does it mean? And then that turned into why is that? I'm not uh, experienced political reporter. And at This American Life, you can kind of choose whatever path you want to go down. And I wanted to go down the path of uh, the Republican side of the 2016 election because it was really exciting time and really fascinating and full of people to talk to. And I was hearing a lot about immigration. And I felt like I didn't understand why immigration had become such a big deal for 2016. I just hadn't... I. I didn't get it, and the the interviews I had done before that didn't totally explain it. So at This American Life, Ira Glass, who's my boss, he kind of lets you he lets you do a lot of fishing expeditions if you've done a few and you've brought back some fish. So I had a, like a little <laughs> leeway uh, by the time the Republican convention came around. And so I went to the Republican convention. I actually ended up having to borrow credentials from NPR. Thank you, NPR, because I like didn't even understand how to get credentialed. Um, but so that was how an experience I was. I'd never been to one of these conventions. Um, but it was really cool. And I went around basically asking everybody at the convention sort of why do you think immigration is the big issue for your party right now? 
And, a and lot, when, sorry, and when you're doing that, were you uh, tell us a little bit about your setup, your production setup when you were out at the convention? Oh. Yeah, hallway. are you all by yourself at the Republican National Convention? Yeah, it's a it's kind of chaotic and huge and daunting. Yeah, it was. It was. And there's this huge concrete structure, you know, with like little makeshift offices yeah. all over. The, it's very media row. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I did not have a place in media row, obviously, um, but like, but I could hang out with NPR. They were nice to me and they let. Me. And because, you know, it's a This American Life, it's like a magazine. You know, I didn't have to report on what was going on every night in the convention for NPR News, which would have been fun. Like, I like doing that, but that's not what I was there to do. Um, so I could just kind of wander in and out and, and look for, basically look for a story that might help me answer this question I had about um, why immigration. And as far as production, it's just radio is, is pretty minimal. So I just had a you know, a digital recorder and my shotgun microphone. And that is all. And my headphones. So just you walking around with a shotgun mic. Yes. And do you find that how do people receive you and when you when when approached? Um well I always approach like with my mic and my headphones on. Like it's clear I'm there to do that, um, to record them. So I I just say, Hi, my name is Zoe. I work with a radio show called This American Life. Um, I'm actually walking around asking some people some questions. Do you mind if I ask you some questions? And that's what I'll do. So I explain who I am and I have my mic out so they know that's like the expectation of what we're doing. Um, and some people really want to know more about what This American Life is before they jump into it. And you just say that it's a radio show. Um, but what I try to do is just like explain like as clearly as possible this is what public radio is this is what this American life is these are the kinds of questions that I'm going to be asking you and then some people don't care and they're like sure I'll talk those are usually the best people they're the best talkers because they're not shy um, and then some people are like oh I love this American life those are usually the worst talkers because they're performing for their idea of what this American life is and that is a problem um, but I didn't run into that many and what, what do you do if someone's like, no, no, never, I will never talk to you, and you think, I really want to talk to this person? I guess, basically, I would, like, pull my headphones off, put the mic down, and say, like, okay, like, talk, what's up, like, why? You know, like, I would try to get from them what their objection was, and we can talk off the record at first, and why don't you explain it to me, and, like, I'll take some notes, and, like, oh, that's actually the thing that I wanted to talk to you about, that thing you just said. Is it okay if we record that? And then we'll go back to that. So when you approach these people and they agree to talk to you, mm -hmm. um, you know, you seem to, you certainly have a manner with people that some, mm -hmm. there's something that allows them to just unburden their souls or really get into the nitty gritty. Do you have a, mm -hmm. a formula? Do you have <laughs> tips? I mean, no. I just have experience being a radio reporter. So I feel like it's not so much that I'm trying to get people to sort of confess or something like that. It's just that I'm used to asking questions on tape in a way that's going to yield the best tape. And then I guess like ways to do that is like get somebody to tell you a story, you know, ask them to recount a conversation that they had about this thing rather than just like, how do you feel about this issue? So at the convention, you met someone from St. Cloud. Is that how it happened? He's not from St. Cloud exactly, but from that area, Bobby Benson. Yeah, he was a delegate to the convention for that district, district for that area of Minnesota. 
And the immigration issue was an issue. Yeah. And Bobby was really not into the wall and he was feeling kind of lost and, and agitated about the direction the party was going in. He started telling me about what it was like basically within his local Republican sort of chapter, I guess, where people were talking in this way about um, Somali Muslim refugees that were being resettled in the area and just in general sort of Somali immigrants who were, you know, coming to St. Cloud from elsewhere because it was, you know, secondary migration stuff um, in this way that was so scary to him. Like he was like, people sound so racist. They sound so xenophobic and bigoted. And I know them. They're not. I don't think of them that way. Like this is confusing. And so I thought maybe if I can talk to the friends of his and basically ask them how they develop these views of immigrants, it will kind of reveal to me how it became such a big issue. So I was like, well, let me go see if the answer is is in St. Cloud. And then so you call up New York and mm-hmm. say, hey, I'm not coming home right away. I'm going <laughs> no, to St. Cloud. No, no, no. It's a whole process. Like, you know, I had to write out this long pitch uh, for for the show, and then you go to the whole show the, and pitch the story to the whole team, the whole group of producers there, including Ira. Um, and then they say, you know, yeah, you can go check this out or not. But um, it's never, it's never really clear that you have a story until you've gotten some tape and you can say, like. Okay, this there is tape there. There's, you know, it's like if you're going exploring for whatever, some rare mineral, and you're like, oh, it's here. Like, I see it. You're allowed to keep going. And I went, and um, I really wasn't sure that I would have a story until I basically got a hold of this town hall tape from 2015 that wasn't on, like, the Internet or anything. I just got it from someone. And that kind of, that brought, that tape made really sort of alive how upset people were, basically Republicans, in this district about refugee resettlement. And just to jump in, here's the moment Zoe's talking about. It's from the tape of that town hall meeting from 2015. So everything is going fine until someone asks the congressman about, quote, assimilation of immigrants, unquote, in St. Cloud. The guy gets heated when the congressman doesn't understand. We did not ask for those Somalis. Nobody asked, asked us if we in St. Cloud want those Somalis. And we understand that social groups like the Lutheran uh, Social Service and the Catholic Charities, they're dumping them in areas like St. Cloud. Okay, and, and so the question is, how many more are coming? We didn't ask for these people. Everybody that you read about is talking about this. So that is a main issue in this, this, this city. There is no control. The people have no control uh, over, over any immigration. The mayor doesn't. I don't know. So how long were you on the ground there? I mean, to, to come mm-hmm. across, to unearth tape like that, mm-hmm. and also to spend enough time. I mean, how do you know how much time it's going to take? You don't. I mean, I'm just fortunate because at This American Life, you just have leeway, you know, or you don't, just depending on what it is. But in this case, like I just did. So I, I don't know. I guess I was there for a week and a half or something. And then, um, you know, talking to trying to find the, the story, trying to find the story, talking to various people. And then um, and then there was actually this stabbing by a Somali. Um, so then I had to go back out and then I spent I spent basically another week after that happened. You do these immersive stories where you get to know people and spend Mm -hmm. time with them. 
when you do that kind of journalism, in how do you know when you're done? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't necessarily know, but I work really closely with editors, um, and they have a vision for the totality of the story. And I feel like sometimes when you're reporting, you feel like you could just keep going and keep developing it. Right. And so it's it's just through working with, like I was working with Brian Reed and Sarah Koenig, who are some of the best radio reporters that exist, and they were editing this story. But at the same time, like, as you're reporting, you start to know, like, I have a hole here, and then you feel like, oh, I plugged it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I think you do get a sense that, like, I don't have that many holes. Like, I can tell a narrative, even though there's probably a couple other things that you might still want to do. You just have a sense of this puzzle is basically complete, and my editor is also asking me for a script. So, <laughs> so it's highly collaborative. Highly, yes, yes. Which is... Great. Yeah. Um, you did a bunch of political stories last year, right? You went to the inauguration. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah. This American Life had a had like a new show the the day of the inauguration. So we were doing a little bit of reporting that the week before. And one of the things that was, you know, they have all those inaugural balls for different states or different groups or donors or whatever. But there was this one called the Deplora Ball that was kind of thrown by um basically a lot of the sort of activist organizers on Twitter that were part of propelling Trump um, to, to the presidency. And they were really kind of congratulating themselves. Like there was this thing that this one person said to me, which was just we memed him into the presidency. It was really and memes, I think, played a big role. And I guess what I would had been interested in was sort of how that had happened. It's always like I guess it's just there's sort of like the how and the why. And um, and I found somebody um, who who ha- had been one of those people on Twitter who was retweeting a lot of memes who could kind of explain to me like this wasn't random, you know, like the way that people were sort of behaving on Twitter around certain memes and like just around Trump in general wasn't necessarily totally just random Trump fans. There was a sort of assembly line in a way um, that that they explained to me where as sort of as soon as something came out that could be used as like opposition to Hillary Clinton. I mean, that was a huge part of supporting Trump was was opposing Hillary Clinton or um, just something funny about Trump that could sort of be a viral thing. It was like they organized themselves to make things viral. Um, One example, obviously, is the word deplorable, like Hillary when Hillary Clinton talked about the basket of deplorables, it was this organizing tool online for people. They could sort of all change their Twitter names to deplorable whatever, and it became it just became a way for people to identify themselves on Twitter. They sort of came together. And amplified it times 10 million. Yeah, and got Gosh. it to the right people or whatever. And someone you interviewed also sort of articulated the fact that Trump himself was a member of this, not a member of this army, but mm-hmm. sort of he also is... Was uh, participating. Participating. He kind of spoke the language somehow of being, of trolling, of being a troll. And and so I think there was like just kind of an affinity with mischief makers on the internet. They were like, this guy is a troll like us. He's anti-political correctness like we are. And he has a way of signaling to us a lot of times um, and so I think they, they did feel, at least at this party that I went to, 
that somebody like them, sort of the ultimate Twitter troll, had had gotten into office. And certainly the president does behave like a Twitter troll. I mean, that's been a very consistent thing that he's been doing. To this day. I mean, one thing that I really admired about that is that, you know, a lot of times you can find someone to say anything, right? Like literally you can go to a coffee shop and sit down and interview people and they will say the crazy crazy stuff stuff that people say. And I really like that you found people to say crazy stuff to you, but did Mm. not just spout taglines or whatever. Mm. They filled in a lot of the gaps about who they are and what motivates them and Mm -hmm. made them more real and less of a cartoon character from this conversation, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess it's the type of there's certain things that that you're looking for. I don't know, like it just in radio, you're 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 looking for somebody that is relatable. And if not relatable, like you don't necessarily have to like them, but you have to be sort of intrigued by them and want to know more about them. So if your listener can kind of slot them into a particular type, like I'm not curious about this person because they're just spouting their lines, like they're not going to engage to to find out more about them. And so I guess like, you know, with with these guys on Twitter that were having their party, it was looking for those same type of people, not looking for necessarily the the person that's, um, I don't know, kind of the most provocative, like, I don't know, Milo Yiannopoulos or something who's going to have all of the ways that he that he likes to provoke and the ways that he was successful as a sort of online person on the right as well as a real life person on the right. You want to find people that somehow the listeners interested in them why are they doing this like what what's what's motivating them and not just dismiss them out of hand the way you might yeah. with Milo Yiannopoulos yeah exactly exactly how many people do you have to talk to before you find that relatable person though were you there all night <laughs> oh well that well you know it's not like it just happens in one night you know what I mean so I mean there's like we me and um um a producer at this American Life Emmanuel Jochi um, he was sort of helping me. Basically, he was going through Twitter and looking for everybody whose name was deplorable, deplorable whatever, and huh. messaging them and writing to them to see if they would talk to him about sort of basically were they going to the deplorable and like were they interesting? What was their deal? And um, and he talked to a bunch of people and I talked to a bunch of people. Here's the thing. By the time I got to the deplorable, the whole story was almost written. You know what I mean? That's right. Right. So that's the trick. It's <laughs> yeah, not like yeah, you just yeah. walk <laughs> in the door and stick out your mic and people exactly. talk to you. It's that's pre-production, a, pre-production. That's a very specific thing, I think, a lot of times if you're going to go to an event like that. You're like, I need a piece of tape like this. And what I needed was somebody to explain to me in a succinct way this idea that the memes helped Trump become the president. And so I talked to all these people. And then this one guy said, we memed him into the presidency. And I was like, oh, that's what I was looking for. And it's not as though it wasn't true when I was looking for someone to say some inauthentic thing. But I needed, like, a specific piece of tape to address it. Do you ever report on a story because you're talking to a lot of people that are voicing things that aren't necessarily sympathetic or positive. Mm -hmm. One might even say offensive. Do you ever get to a point where you're just, I can't just be an objective reporter about this? This is just Um, over the line? I don't. um, I don't. 
uh, usually. I just feel like, um, I don't know, like I feel very desperate sort of in my job. Like I want to find a good story. And so <laughs> it's more like this is working or this isn't going to work. And that's where my like emotion comes into it, where I feel sort of despair if it's not working and I feel excited if it is working. And my whole kind of personal relationship to the material, my own opinions, you know, my own experience, it just like isn't the thing operating. Um, I will say there was one guy who I called recently in Iowa because he was in District 1 of Iowa, which um, actually sort of flipped the most. It was like the most Obama to the most Trump. That was a story I was pursuing. And I found this guy who was now a Trump voter who had been a, a, a Democrat before. And I called him on the phone and he called President Obama the N-word. And I remember I just was like, I just don't, I'm not curious now. Like, I'm not going to do that. And that word is so scary. Like, it's so offensive and scary that I kind of like basically hung up after that. Like, even though I am curious how somebody who was a Democrat became a Trump voter. But when that happened, I just was like, there's nothing here and I got to go. That was your line. Yeah. Crossed over. Yeah. Well, and you and at that moment, it was. Yeah. That he, he would not be that relatable person you were looking for. No. I mean, that was it. It was that, you know, I'm like, oh, there's nothing here for a story. Like, I'm not going to be able to use this. But I also was personally freaked out and hung up. And that's, that's an unusual feeling. There is this argument that, you know, people have back and forth about when you are bringing into the public light people who have words and thoughts that are offensive or destructive or um, detrimental to society that, you know, as journalists, should we be giving them a platform? Is it good for people to hear this because people need to know? Mm -hmm. um, do you have any of those kinds of thoughts or is it really just about, it's about the despair and I forget exactly <laughs> right, what you said. Right, the story, you know, yeah. is the story gonna work or not? Um, no, I mean, it comes up. Uh, it certainly came up on our show recently when we did a show after Charlottesville um, where we were talking to at least one person who participated in it um, in, in, the, in the, the, the torches that everybody knows what Charlottesville is, the Unite the Right rally. Um, and so that came up as, as a, a question, I guess, but... Um, I don't know, like, I personally am always just, I just want to know what's going on in America, like, what's actually going on. And I just want the reporting to be good about it. So for me, you know, I, like, to do a story on a Nazi just because there are Nazis or something like that doesn't seem like that interesting. But how are the Nazis doing? What are they up to right now? How are they organizing? Where are they? Like, what's their experience now that we have? Trump is president. Um, like all those things are interesting to me. Like I want to know sort of all of the, the bones of what's going on in America. And like that's what I'm curious about. So to me, there's never something that is off limits to report. It's just are you learning something from this or not? And that's how I think about it. So Ira has been tweeting about you a little bit since you won your DuPont. Oh, and, has he? Well, just a few things. He congratulated you. and nice. uh, For winning a fancy, I'm quoting now, a fancy journalism award mm -hmm. for her thrilling and illuminating political coverage. Which he edited. 
<laughs> Very well. Even more thrilling and more illuminating yeah. because of his editing. Yeah. But then he also posted, quote, funny to hear Zoe Chase worry obsessively about getting fired on another podcast this week. And then when a huge DuPont Columbia Journalism Award days later, does it put your fears in perspective, buddy? <laughs> Unquote. So what was that about? And does it put mm-hmm. your fears in perspective? You have fears about getting fired? Well, yeah, I do have fears about getting fired. I think most journalists fear that. It's just an unstable <laughs> industry. <laughs> and then also right now, uh, with what's going on in the media, there's just random media companies just shutting down. Um, but um, I, I think it's not just like getting fired it's just it's just somehow like if you're in a position where you're you're doing the work that you want to do and it's a dream job I, I mean it's just scary that it could go away and I feel really scared about that that it's not going to work for whatever like it's just going to stop happening for whatever reason either I'll get fired because I'll screw up like I'll make a massive mistake and I'll get fired for that or um or I won't find another story you know it's always that um you're only as good as your next story, and that's just how it is. And so it, it, I'm afraid of that happening. I think a lot of people, well, I don't know, but a lot of women I know are afraid they're not going to find their next story. <laughs> um, ding, 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 <laughs> women. But, uh, yeah, so Ira Ira was listening to, a, I don't know if he was listening or if someone told him about this long-form interview that I did, which they interview sort of writers and journalists about how they do their work. But it's a big part of how I work is the sort of fear that I'm not going to get to do this work again. And I think that can be a helpful piece of motivation and and a hindrance (laughs) where it can just be depressing. Right. You know, if you don't feel like if this, if a feeling of success only lasts a little bit, but a feeling of failure lasts a long time, like that can really wear on you. Well, I hope winning the DuPont and coming up to Columbia to win will help Boost your spirits ever higher and higher. Do you have advice for our radio students here? What oh. are, if you were to start over again or if mm-hmm. you were just starting out, um, what would you advise a student today? I've just noticed people lately sort of seem to think, because you can just kind of go out and make radio really easily now and just kind of throw just throw something together and maybe pitch it somewhere or... Um, or whatever, just like kind of pick up, pick it up and get into it because there's so many podcasts. I just think in radio, radio is a team sport. It is not by yourself. You never do it by yourself. And every time I do an interview, I discuss it with Brian or Nancy, Brian Reed or Nancy Updike or Ira or somebody. It's like you discuss what the story is going to be with somebody. You discuss what tape you're going to get. Then you play the tape for someone else. Then you go back to get tape and then you play that for someone else. Like it's just never by yourself. So you need to find good collaborators, right? Yeah. And you need to know how to ask for help. Like you should be, I think, constantly asking for help. I mean, Ira really models that at This American Life. Like he never, even when he writes the top of a show and it's very short, you know, it's like he still pulls a bunch of staff in to read it. The process is always that it's vetted through the group because that makes it stronger. So it's open and democratic in that regard that everyone can pipe up or pinch it. Pitch and it. also that mm-hmm. gives you such a great message, which is that you're not some kind of loser if you are asking for this help. Yeah, yeah. That anyone can be better with input from others. Absolutely. Thank you to Zoe Chase for leaving her studio to come by our studio and share her thoughts. A few days after this conversation... 
she and 15 other DuPont Columbia winners took to the stage in the Low Library Rotunda to receive their silver batons and the accolades of their peers. Yeah, and all this season on the On Assignment podcast, we're going to be bringing you conversations with several of those DuPont winners. You can watch the ceremony on DuPont.org, and we're also posting excerpts of the winning remarks on our Facebook page. I have to say, I was really impressed by how profound some of the speeches were. They were they were short, to the point, and really substantive. Zoe actually talked about how current the immigration issue still is, and it just shut down our government and may do so again in the coming weeks. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by Millie Christie Derveaux and Sarah Wyman with the assistance of our DuPont fellows, Katia Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and visit us at onassignmentpodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next month with another episode of On Assignment.